ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Nazim Hussain is a comedian who's written and starred in some of the most fiercely funny Australian TV comedies of the last few decades, particularly Legally Brown on SBS and Orange is the New Brown on Channel 7. Nazim has since made a hugely popular Netflix special titled Nazim Hussain, Public Frenemy. It was filmed at Montreal's Just for Laughs Comedy Festival and he's performed all over the world and he's even written a kid's book because he's now a dad. And Nazim is now about to begin a national tour with his new live show that's called Totally Normal. And yet all of this is such a shame because he was once such a fine, upstanding tax <laughs> consultant. Hello, Nazim. Hey, who says I'm still not? No, no. Uh, if anyone has received tax advice from me, uh, get a second opinion and a lawyer. <laughs> do, do comedians backstage come to you and say, oh, mate, can you, I, I, I hate to ask, but Look, can, you, can you help me? Comedians backstage uh, are all bush lawyers, are all bush accountants. Everyone's got advice, medical advice, or did you hear this, laws change, or, you know, it's all dodgy. The chat backstage, that's, uh, I don't know, it's so defamatory, ill-informed, but funny. <laughs> <laughs> Things have changed since my day. <laughs> oh, no, None I of bet. us knew stuff at all. We were not, nowhere near professionally okay. qualified. I've, I've seen some of your colleagues backstage and it's just the same sort of stuff. Like it's, as soon as you're on stage, it suddenly becomes palatable. You know, it's edgy, but the stuff that happens amongst comedians when no one else is watching is just unhinged. It's totally heinous. Yeah. Comedians say the most awful, awful things. Yeah. And it's really not fit for public consumption <laughs> because people assume you mean what you say. When In fact, what you're doing is trying to get laughs by being mm. awful. Yeah. Comedians like, we're used to making, uh, you know, ordinary members of the public laugh. So to make a comedian laugh, you've really got to dial it up. You're really testing the theory, uh, you know, do words actually, can words hurt? Can words offend? And I don't know. I don't know if they can amongst comedians. It's terrible when civilians walk backstage and catch you and you don't see them. They, go, they look at you and go, I thought I knew you. Yeah, I thought I, you were a comic. I thought you were a comic and you're a terrible human being. You go, well, well, I am a terrible human being. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Please delete that video. <laughs> so, Nazim, your family is originally from Sri Lanka. Tell mm. me, what do you know about how your parents met? Oh, I don't know a whole lot of detail. I, what I do know is that... My mum had never left Sri Lanka before she met my dad. I think she might have gone to India for a holiday or she might have missed out on that holiday and the rest of her family went. But basically, she was born and raised in Colombo. My dad, a well-travelled man, he studied in London. He studied um, engineering and I think political sciences as well. Maybe at Oxford and or Cambridge. I'm not too sure. But then he came to Sri Lanka and his mum and my mum's parents arranged for them to meet at my mum's home. So my dad came with his mum and I think a, a male representative of his family because his dad had passed. And, uh, yeah, they chat a little bit. My mum giggled. She was, like, smitten. My dad, I think, was he was he, he, he found my mum beautiful and um, was happy enough to say, yes, I would like to marry. Well, he came to her house. And, uh, yeah, not too long afterwards, bop, 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 they got married. What are Sri Lankan Muslim weddings like? Well, the, the men dress in suits, but they wear like uh, Moroccan fez, those red fez mm. cap things, and the women dress in saris. There's, you know, there's a, there's lots of different stages of the wedding. So there's like the asking, you know, you ask formally ask for the hand, then there's the engagement, which is actually the wedding, and then there's the walima, or which is the homecoming, which is after they get. So there's like a, a bunch of parties, but the bride has to act very demure, shy, like she's, well, often she's not acting. Like she's, she's, she's sad to be leaving her family's oh, home. And she needs to be wooed, she's, essentially. Wooed, but also yeah. like, oh, no, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I've never touched a man, I've, oh, you know, right, I've, and right. I'm now going to move in with this man. And but people get confused with arranged marriages and they, and they sort of associate them with forced marriages. Like they're not. She chose, but still there's the whole performance. And it's not really put on, but, you yeah, know, she's got to move. But then, yeah, people feed you cake as well. You go up to this sad bride and you put cake in her mouth with your hand and, and the groom as well. The groom's pretty happy, but the bride is not. That goes on for days. Is there a mm. kind of throne or something? As yeah, well? they sit on these like beautiful chairs, basically like a throne, and and literally the entire like the, all the guests line up and feed cake. Like you go up and you take a spoonful of cake, put it in your hand, and then you and you feed the bride and groom. So I mean, I don't know what sort of stuff they catch like afterwards, <laughs> but maybe they've got a they've, you know they've built up an immune system leading up to. But it's um, but yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun because I then went to my own mum's one when she remarried. Maybe about, I don't know, like 15, 15 years ago now. And it was the same sort of thing. But the funny thing was my mum was still acting demure and shy 
in the same way that she would have when before we, even though she's she's left Sri Lanka, she's raised three kids by herself. <laughs> she's a she's a mum of three. Right. And yeah. we were like, why are you putting this act on? You know, everybody knows this it's is your tradition. second marriage. It's culture, it's tradition. Yeah, it's tradition, it's culture. I think she's still, you know, it's like, no, no, you know. <laughs> so what brought them to Australia? So my dad, after being qualified in the UK, had work opportunities. Well, I guess he could have worked in Sri Lanka, but I think if you, you know, if you've studied in the UK, you get, you know, the the dream is go somewhere in the West and make some big cash, and that's you know, move up in the world. You're an engineer. You're, people want you. Yeah, yeah you're an engineer. Yeah. So you could, he he had the opportunity to go to Canada, the UK, or Australia. I'm not sure why. I think maybe he had friends that came here, or maybe there's a better job opportunity. But he can't, he just he chose Australia of the of the three places. And so then, yeah. So then my, my parents moved to Australia in the late-ish 70s. And That's an interesting period to migrate in. It's just it's like the white Australia <laughs> policy has only been gone for five years it, at that it, point. Yeah, and I, well, I, I feel like maybe by law, but um, from their stories, it felt like a pretty daily reality. So they settled in suburban Burwood. They settled in Burwood. Which, which, is there a thriving Sri Lankan community there in the late uh, yes. 70s? Oh, yeah, it was my, my mum and dad. That was it. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, um, so it must have been a hard uh, welcome, if you can even use that word. It, it wasn't a warm welcome, I guess. They weren't, like, aggressively hostile, but they would just casually make remarks. I think my dad got called Little Black Sambo regularly by our neighbours, who may or may not still be around. <laughs> you know, the N-word was thrown around just sort of casually... That's pretty serious racism. It's pretty serious racism, but it's also yeah. like misdirected. Like we're South Asian, you know, we're brown. So that's, you know, there are other words, there are other slurs for us. Racism, the way that they talk about their experiences of racism, like if that sort of stuff happened to me and my generation of brown people in Australia now, we would be like, what? That is insane. Like that's the sort of stuff that you read about in, in headlines now. But that was just everyday racism, just like being called names, being spat at. You know, they used to go to the cricket every other weekend when the cricket was on, actually every weekend when it was on, but just the sort of, the show us your visa was 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 not said in jest. It was like, go to your section over there, piss off. Like, it was very aggressive. And so to assimilate or to integrate meant to assimilate back then. Did that mean you felt embattled growing up, you and your siblings, or did your parents try and shield you from that crap? It was a real tension, because well, growing up, when I was in school, by the time I got to school, I, my parents had uh, separated. So we were sort of grappling with transitioning to like a single parent household, and that was a real struggle to make ends meet. So the, the, the racism on top of that was just another factor that my mum had to sort of juggle as well. And my mum's someone that doesn't know how to do subtle. She often used to say, you know, she would try to help us get out of situations, not by like confronting the bully in an aggressive way, and also not by like completely just bowing down and taking it. But, you know, so for instance, this one kid whose surname was, oh, his surname was Vickers. And my, and my sister came home and said, oh, mum, this guy keeps calling me black this, da, da, da. And she goes, what's his name? And she said, oh, something, something Vickers. And she goes, okay, go to school tomorrow and say, blah, Vickers, you forgot your knickers. And so she just started calling. <laughs> she just said that once and the whole class, you know, picked up on it and they started using that. And, and, and he just stopped bullying my sister. Like it just sort of worked. My mum used to brainstorm funny ways to sort of break the tension. Like she, she took matters into her own hands. My older sister used to get bullied a lot and, you know, racist bullying. And she's not like me or my younger sister. Like when she used to get bullied, she used to get smaller, just exclude herself. So my mum went to complain to the teachers. The teachers didn't do anything. She went to the principal. The principal told my mum to just leave it alone. Kids will figure it out. Also that my mum's probably imagining the racism. So she went to the local MP's office, who at the time was Jeff Kennett. Jeff Kennett. Premier of Victoria. And the receptionist was like, sorry, can I help you? And my mum said, I want to speak to Jeff. And she goes, well, who are you? Do you have an appointment? And she saw Jeff in the office, walked past the receptionist and told Jeff about the bullying. I don't know what happened, but 45 minutes later, my mum walks back into the principal's office with Jeff Kennett by her side. And the principal's like, oh, oh, Mr. Kennett. And Jeff Kennett said, listen, just do whatever this lady says. And the bullying stopped. But it, it took my mum to bully the Premier of Victoria <laughs> to, to, to tell the principal to do the right thing. So... That's amazing. I don't know whether she actively was like, you know, has this idea that like we must tackle racism or stand up for yourself or she just doesn't know how to not solve a problem. You know, she can't sit on something that's not not resolved. I mean, some people are like, well, you know, we'll agree to disagree. My mum doesn't do that. She just doesn't know how to sit in an argument that hasn't been completed. But she still has. Again, like every migrant that came in the 70s. Um, or, or, or our parents, you know, we are the guests and these are the hosts. We must respect the hosts. And if they are telling us off, well, you know, you don't yell at your host. If you go to someone's house, you don't kick up a fuss. So keep your head down and just sort of take it in a polite way. But if you can sort of 
maintain your dignity in a way. You mentioned your parents split up. Mm. How, how was your dad faring, though, in those early years with you as kids? I don't have a lot of memories with him. Photographs trigger more memories than, you know, they sort of remind me of, like, moments. But I do remember that I used to love being around my dad, only boy, something about a, a, a boy and just longing for his dad. Was he charismatic? Oh, super charismatic. He, he's not a chatterbox like me, but he just commands the sort of attention and respect of the, of the room. And he was sort of like a party starter in just the way that everything he said was hilarious. And, I'm, you know, I've sort of hung out with him in my adult years and he's still the same sort of guy. He could flip between a Sri Lankan accent and an Australian accent, like seamlessly, in a way that other migrants can't. Like my mum's been here for, well, since I was born, you know, in the 70s. And can't do an Australian accent. My dad could, you know, talk like a Sri Lankan and then suddenly, oh, g'day, mate, how's it going? Like just absolute light switch transition. So he could get along with white Aussies, Sri Lankan Australians just loved him. Like he just had an electricity about him. Every party would go to, at some point, people would start punching on. There was a lot of alcohol back in the Sri Lankan Muslim community back then. Oh, in Australia generally. <laughs> Australia yeah, generally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so he would sometimes get involved, but also he would have a way with his words. He was a small man, short guy, but he compensated for that with, uh, not with a fast car, but with, with, with his charisma. I think in the past you've mentioned he had a problem with the drink and did you see much of that yourself? Uh, yeah, look, um, again, I was quite young, but we saw a lot of it. He would, yeah, I, th- I think he would have a tough time at work. I think he used to cop a lot of stuff a lot of probably racism and, and maybe like saw his colleagues getting promoted around him and probably, you know, highly educated alongside people who were probably fairly mediocre in their, I don't know, experience and qualifications and just used to take it out at home, turn to alcohol. We used to get caught into the living room when, when things were getting violent and my mum would call us in so that my dad would stop as soon as he saw us. It's like he suddenly could see himself and would stop. But then, you know, that shame cycle would spiral. And yeah, my mum would at all times, she would never badmouth him, would always genuinely, and she believed it, you know, tell us that he has a heart of gold and we believed it and, you know, that alcohol. And I do believe that alcohol definitely did make him someone that he wasn't. But at the same time, you know, you you are responsible for your actions. And so, yeah, it was horrible. It It was a horrible time. Was he kicked out or did he just leave of his own accord? My mum never wanted him out. Like, when none of us wanted him out. Um, it wasn't like, you know, I, I'm sure she had advice from her friends and people, you know, who knew. And it, there, there wouldn't have been many people that knew because it was shameful to talk about this sort of stuff happening within the home and it's not respectable um, to talk about this sort of thing. And we wanted him. But I think it just got to the point where he he just up and left. He just went to Sri Lanka and, and we found out, I don't know how, and so I just have a memory of us speeding to the airport, to Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, uh, to try and catch him before he left. And then we missed him. And then, yeah, we came back and I just remember crying in the car back. And that's, well, that's when my mum fell into a, a long, longish deep depression, which had different forms, undiagnosed. But, yeah, we all, as kids, particularly my older sister, had to sort of step up and almost parent ourselves for a period. And um, how old were you at the time? Is it? I would have been about six, uh, five, six. So this would have seemed really inexplicable and hard to take in. Oh, absolutely. Your parents are your pillars and you, well, you only realise that when they're not there. It feels broken. You know, our lives felt broken. The home felt broken. You know, there's a real shame around it too because of the time. Divorce was stigmatised generally. Um, we were also in Australia by ourselves with no extended family, so... My mum's family overseas were concerned about whether we were okay and so we had to put up a face. Also for the Sri Lankan community in Australia, divorced women weren't like put up on a pedestal as like survivors and strong independent women. Like there was something not nice about it. And my mum never said this to us, but we definitely felt it and even going to school, I I definitely lied about my dad being around. Like my friend's We'd be like, oh, where's your dad? I was like, oh, yeah, no, he's, he's just on holidays. Or I'll just lie about him not having up and left. And also my dad used to play this sort of, like we used to try and get in contact with him. And he, and he used to sort of promise that he was going to come. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm, I'm coming, son. And we used to genuinely get our hopes up. And my mum used to often tell us to just manage our expectations. But you can't, you know, as a kid, you, I don't know, I just couldn't. You sort of cling to that hope. And 
our mum telling us that was almost like, why are you trying to make us sad? It's almost like telling us that Santa's not real, that your dad's not going to come and visit, that he is going to break your heart again and again. And I don't know if he intended to do that, but he, 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 he did that and he was wired differently, I guess. As a dad now, I don't know how someone can just leave their children. Like I, th- Men think, oh, they're better off without me. But I just don't know. Like I get that as like a, like a head thought, but emotionally, like how does someone cut themselves away from their own children? Like even from a self-interested perspective, like that hurts yourself. That hurts you. That's like the idea of someone taking away my child now is really like physically painful. Like it's almost traumatic to think about. But, you know, I've obviously had a, a lifetime to think about how and why my dad was wired that way and other men as well. And look, my dad's dad passed away, I think just before he was born. And, and so, so, so maybe there was something fractured there in the way that he was constructed, you know, like his emotional wiring was, I think, faulty. I, that's not normal. There are all these brilliant Muslim community groups in Australia that are kind of unsung and they do a lot of the hard work of, well, hard work, quite joyous work really, of knitting Australia together, making it all work, helping new migrants find a, a good home and make, building a good life in Australia. Yeah. Did they come to the rescue at this point for you and your family? Yes, lots and lots of people did. Again, like I said, broadly, there was a stigma, but there were so many members of the community that used to sort of step in as, now I understand, they were playing the role of like a surrogate dad. And especially for me, as a boy, as a man, you know, I, was, you know, I had two sisters and, and my mum, and she had some, some women friends that used to come and help. But there were a bunch of men who I still see today, were now elderly, who used to, you know, at the community events, would encourage me to do the call to prayer, you know, the Adhan, and they would, you know, go Nazim. And so, as a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy, I would do the call to prayer and hundreds of people would stop talking and listen, which was a real man's job. At, at times, I would start to lead the prayer. Again, like, <laughs> Islamically underqualified, but these were men that, like, kept propping me up and compliment, you know, you know and, and, I, and I saw one of them the other day at, um, in the city. I was a guy, Uncle Eddie. He was such a warm, loving guy. Never said, oh, I'm so sorry about your dad leaving, or, but just kind of made me feel whole. Countless men like this in the community. Oh, we, you know, my mum, there was a lawyer in the next street, just a solicitor, just a local suburban solicitor. My mum befriended him and he used to come around and just just go for walks with me or just chat. A, a, a guy who used to teach me Quran, this Pakistani guy who who was always evading immigration, who's now uh, back in Pakistan. But he taught me to, you know, he not only taught us Quran, he taught me how to ride a bike, drive a car, save petrol driving a car by turning the car off when you go downhill. Um, I, I learned to drive a car before I was about, like, just all that sort of, you know. Um, Boy, that's extreme frugality, that is. That's impressive. Oh, like yeah. how to, um, you know, the, the discount yogurt days and, like, just, just life advice. Um, from like a, you know, a migrant trying to make ends. See, I feel like a bad father. I've never told my kid about discount yoga, day, yoga days. The Tuesdays. Tuesdays? Uh, Tuesdays okay. at Woolies, I believe. Look, it's probably store to store. Um, he also taught me how to wrestle. I remember because like, you know, he's like, you need to learn how to fight. And he put me in these Lockwood locks, which was like, now what are you going to do? And I'm just now looking back, I'm like, you're a 35-year-old man fighting a nine-year-old. And he's like, can you get out of this? I'm like, no, no actual, these weren't real moves. He just made them up. But he was just like kind of toughening me up. We had this kind of just mixed bag. My mum used to also, because we were, we were always lacking in food and luxury, like she used to have just random people come and, like if they were suffering, she'd just go, oh, come stay with us. There was some guy, he was a bit of an alcoholic, a nice guy, older dude, much older, and so he used to come and just stay with us and we'd just feed him. We used to go volunteer at the nursing homes just to sort of um, always remember that, like, life is tougher for others. This meant, of course, there was... Not much money after your dad, dad left. And tell me about the leaflet delivery oh, yeah. thing you worked out with you yeah. and your sisters and your mum. <laughs> oh, man, you're really making me expose all our criminality. But um, Criminality? We, well, I don't know if it's crime. It was definitely, we definitely didn't. Yeah, it's actually, it's not, I don't think it's crime. We, we used to get these contracts to deliver leaflets. And my mum would get them. And, you know, the expectation was that she would deliver them. But she would take on like four or five times the amount that one person can do. And she said, oh, no, 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 uh, um, don't worry, I'll get it done. I have people that I work with. And the people were, well, they were people. It was me and my sisters. And we used to have this sort of factory thing going on at home where we'd fold the leaflets, pile them in the car, sit on top of these leaflets. And just, you know, after school, we'd just start delivering till maybe midnight. And then we realised this is just so difficult to complete all these suburbs. So what we used to do was my mum would drive us top of the road, my sister would get out, deliver a few houses, I would go to the next street, and then she'd pick us up at the bottom of the street 
and we would we would just run down and do the do the houses at the bottom. So when the supervisor drives past, he'd say, "Oh yeah, this street's done because I could see these houses at the top of the street and the bottoms." Like we, we didn't do the whole street, so it just <laughs> saved us time. So we got we kind of got four to five suburbs done in about one suburb's time. Well, that's that's cheating, but it's not criminal. It's not criminal. Yeah. Okay. Yes, thank God for that. But it was scary. Like I said, I remember I used to go down to the, there's one suburb in Ashwood, in Ashwood in Melbourne. There's one street where there were these housing commission flats, and there were these kids there that used to terrorize. Every time I'd walk down, they'd go, "Hey, there's that guy who delivers leaflets," and they start trying to just t- just to chase me. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm delivering leaflets. How come? Oh, because it's my job. How come you've got a job? You're only a kid. I'm like, well, because I got a contract. You're too young to have a contract. And then they'd take their dog with them, and the dog was up. But it was just like a. It was just this, like, week in, week out. I can't walk down that street without thinking about him. What was Nazim Hussain the school kid like? Probably difficult to teach. Like, I used to, I used to get good grades. I didn't put a lot of work in at home, I think, and still today. So, I, so I you got bored and played up? Bored. All my reports, Nazim is easily distracted and distracts others. Though he completes, though he gets good marks and he's very capable, he's just constantly... Just a distraction. So, so you were getting like the top marks, and then pushing down everyone else's grade point average, essentially around <laughs> right. you. Right. Like, uh, uh, to be honest, I was also like, so I'd finish my my test, and then I'll be helping the guy next to me cheat. You know, I would just be like, "Here's my do these, just write this down." And so I'd get in trouble for that. But you know, the teacher would try to tell me off. Nazim, you're talking and you're distracting others, and I would stand up and say, "Yeah, absolutely, I'm distracting others." And she go, "You've got to leave to the principal's office. I'm going to leave to the principal's office. Do you want me to beat myself?" And I start smacking my butt. The whole class would laugh. The teacher would have to hold herself from laughing. But I was just like, not like a mean kid to teach, but I was just like this annoying. I feel bad for all my teachers. Nonetheless, you got into a selective high school, Melbourne High, and that would have driven you a bit harder. And I don't know, is that what happened? Or well, yeah, I mean, so I went to, you know, Ashburton Primary, local state school. Then I went to Mount Waverley Secondary College for two years, year seven and eight. And then the selective school which starts at year nine. Mount Waverley was famous for, we had chain emails back in the day, which used to describe your school. And it said, you know, you know, you went to Mount Waverley if you had high quality marijuana. Like we were famous <laughs> for that back then. And so like to, to try hard in your, in your studies was like, why, mate? What are you, like it was frowned. Like, it wasn't What's wrong cool. with you? What's wrong with you? I remember, this, is, this sounds fake. I, I, I handed in an assignment once <laughs> and my teacher accused me of plagiarising from Encarta 97. Like she, she said that my work was, like I clearly couldn't have done it because it was not all over the shop or something. So I had to dumb my own work down so that I wouldn't get in trouble from the teacher. <laughs> so going to Melbourne High was just like light and shade. Like it was all the kids there, you know, selective entry, state school, you pay a state school fee for like a, like a private school education. Kids came from private schools and state schools around Melbourne and Victoria. And, oh, man, it was, the, it was the best. Everyone was excited about learning. In fact, being cool meant you tried and you got good grades. Like the coolest kid I remember one year was this guy called Zi Hong Chen who was in the Maths Olympics. And, and everyone was like, oh, my God, you're in the Maths. Like genuinely, that was super cool. Teachers used to, like, we used to hang out with teachers after hours, sometimes at the state library just talking about the subject just for fun. It was, it was a great culture. So there you are, this child of Sri Lankan Muslim migrants and year 2001, at that point, probably not a great many Australians would know much at all about Islam. Um, <laughs> no. Not much at all about Sri Lanka, and they often assumed Kamal was uh, an African-American, <laughs> of course, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And then the attacks on the World Trade Centre and the Pentagon mm. happened on September 11, 2001. Mm. Uh, I don't want to make it be sound overly dramatic. That, did that moment completely turn your life as a young Muslim kid on its axis? Oh, we were all watching that live as it happened in the rumpus room at home and um, it was very confusing because, um, yeah, I think people, what people knew about Muslims back then was we were just another weird ethnic group that did weird stuff. You know, we were like Sikhs or Hindus. Right. Or it was eccentric. Jewish. It was just kind of like, this, yeah, yeah, they dress weird and they go to some weird looking church. Ramadan, what's that? Like, you know, is that a food? or like, No one really knew. But after 9-11, immediately we became this community that was politically motivated. They weren't just weird looking, like we had dangerous beliefs and we were all walking around with these beliefs inside us. And so we became suspicious neighbours and for, for Muslims. Like we were watching that in real time going, like, why are these people dressed like the guys at our mosque who are good people, we, but they're doing bad things? And, yeah, I guess like in a way we were like, are we actually learning bad stuff or are they, like how could they lie about something beautiful? We then had this massive pressure on us within the community to become upstanding. We were 
taught to be ambassadors of the faith. Right, model minority. Model minority. But, yeah. but, but, you know, but like at, at the sheikh would be like, every time you wear a hijab or a grow a beard or say your name is Muhammad or Nazim, you are, people will be looking at you like you represent the faith. So you have to be upstanding. Don't make a mistake. And that's why every time anybody goes on the TV speaking as a Muslim, there's so much pressure on them. But yeah, immediately after that happened in nine, um, on September 11, um, I remember like, you know, I'm a, I'm a funny guy and I like making jokes and cracking jokes and taking them. Uh, well, one kid said, oh, is this your uncle Saddam? <laughs> and any other day of the week, that you know, that's kind of funny just calling me Saddam. But for some reason that really, really got to me. And me and my best friend at the time, we stopped talking for maybe a year. He's a really good guy. But I don't know why I couldn't get over it. And it wasn't him. I think he just represented the tension that I was feeling and that we were all feeling as a Muslim. Like, were you asked to explain yourself as a Muslim? All the time. Like we would have to explain parts of our theology that we were still learning about. Any woman that wore the hijab, any child that wore the hijab or even, even Sikh had to explain being Muslim and, you know, what the ideas of jihad meant, so, which, just, again, that's a complex idea. So it pushed people to take their hijabs off, not identify as Muslim anymore, change their names at Deeth Pol. I know a guy whose name is a very Arab-sounding name. He changed his name at, legally to William. It certainly defined us, and I think a lot of our um, personal identities are still shaped by the residue of that. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. So up until 9-11, September 11, yeah. what kind of com- career ambitions did you have, Nassim? <laughs> this sounds made up. I wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> laugh. My, my mum oh, used to boast about, uh, you know, she'd be like, ask oh. my children what they want to be. My, my older sister would say, I want to be a doctor. My, uh, my younger sister would say, I want to be a lawyer so I can um, protect mum in court. And my older sister was like, so I could treat my mum if she gets sick. And I was like, I want to be a pilot so I can fly my mum around whenever she wants around the world. And she would be so proud of that. But then 9-11 happened. And probably a couple of months later, I was like, nah, I can't be a pilot anymore because no one's going to hire Nazim Muhammad Hussein. This is your captain, Nazim Muhammad Hussein speaking. Like that's... Nothing to worry about. All the passengers right. would get yeah. off the plane. Like I was just yeah. like, ah, that's not going to work. So I, I decided then and there I was, I'll become a lawyer too because I was like, I'm going to change the world. Through. Like I didn't, I didn't think I really, I still don't think I really understand the concept of lawyers, like and what they do. <laughs> but I was like, that, that's how you change the world. They fight yeah. the world, the injustices with the word. Well, they might. <laughs> yeah, for, for, the, for an appropriate fee. <laughs> yeah, that's in right. Six minute increments. So that's what you did. And what was your first job out of uni? So I, I finished my last exam and then I went to the cafeteria and there was a flyer on the table from a big four professional services firm, which said, you don't need a commerce degree to work for us. And I was like, oh, I've just, I studied science and law. So I was like, so I applied there, got the job, and then just never applied anywhere else because, oh, I just got a job. So I just, I, I sort of completely just abandoned my actual <laughs> ambition to be a world-changing lawyer and just started working a tax consultancy firm. Well, so I did rotations in audit and then advisory and then tax, but I was also starting out doing comedy then, um, Stand up and radio and Salam Cafe, which is on SBS. And so it was a job where I could do the work real quick, keep my jacket on my seat, and then just run down the road and do. I used to try like Batman. Yeah, like, like Batman. Was, right. Like, like, a, like a tax Batman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tax comedy Batman. And then tax people. Tax Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like my, I, I used to get busted. I don't know why I thought I'd get away with it. Like drug dealing, I would have got away with because yeah. it's secretive. It's everywhere in the law, but but being a comedian, <laughs> yeah. right? That was your dirty secret. Oh, it was my dirty secret that um, I got you know I got found out real quick. Uh, my colleagues, you know, they would listen to Triple J because it would be Triple J that I'd run down the street to do with the doctor, you know, Lindsay McDougall. And so someone would be like, "Is Nazim on the radio now?" And then other colleagues would be like, no, 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 his jacket's on his seat. This is a pre-record because he was just here in the meeting. You saw him. And then someone else would be like, no, uh, they're taking calls. This is a live chat right now. <laughs> and so I get busted. But you know. Okay, so you're doing comedy at this point. Mm. Now, once once you sort of figure out how to make an audience laugh, it's a pretty cool life, actually. As a oh, my God. It's, a, it's, it's very slack, too, a lot of the time. But then to get to there, you have to take this huge step, which is you have the thought that I might try this, stand <laughs> up on stage and make people laugh, yeah. and to make that step onto the stage is a gigantic step. Yeah. step. Do you remember doing that? 
so I, it was kind of like I mucked around in community events. So like, again, like the Muslim community, Sri Lankan community, whenever there was an event and the projector would break down or the speaker was late, they're like, Nazim, just get up and just like talk to the audience. So you should just get up and be like, hey, okay, guys, what's going on? And then I'd start making fun of people in the crowd, like making fun of the bald uncle or someone that was fat or something. Like I, I sort of had no rules. I didn't have any moral compass on stage. I probably don't. <laughs> but, you know, I used right. to get in trouble afterwards. I remember one time I was, you know, on a Muslim youth camp at night. We'd have this thing called Nazim Live where I would sort of do a bit of like Rove Live, you know. I was, I'd, I'd do like a monologue about the day, make fun of people. Through the day people would be like, oh, you got to talk about Muhammad, how we fell in the creek. And so, that, you know, I'd do a story about that. And then they would interview like a psychologist or a sheikh or someone, you know, and that would be where they learned. So, it was so like, it wasn't one big step. It was like a lot of series of small steps. Yeah, then, series of small steps, yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of learnt uh, what was acceptable, what, what made people laugh and what didn't through that. One time I made a joke about my mum, like I started talking about her and the sheikh was there in the room. Everyone was laughing. I had them. And I just loved that feeling of, like, making a room full of people laugh. And then the sheikh stood up and he's well-respected. He said, Nazim, you have backbitten about your mother. You have talked bad about her. This is a sin. You must go and apologise to her immediately. And, and then he walked off stage. He walked out of the room and everyone went silent. I was there with the mic. It was the worst heckle I've ever had. And then I just I was, I felt so bad. I've never been heckled spiritually like that. And then, anyway, the, the camp finished. The bus, you know, turned up. And my mum was there. And then uh, I went up to my mum and the chef came. And, and I said, oh, uh, mum, on camp I made a joke about you. She said, what was it? And I told her, I said the story about you bringing lunch to school and no one understanding your accent and blah, blah, blah. And uh, she, she was like, that's funny. And then she saw the chef. I said, no, I've sinned. And then the chef was looking at her with a serious face. And my mum said, oh, yes, of course, Nazim, you mustn't do it. And then, you know, we went to the car and then in the car she laughed. <laughs> but, like, then I was like, oh, there are rules, there are boundaries. But, yeah, after that, um, you know, I think it was 2006 or seven, I entered Raw Comedy, which is like Melbourne Comedy Festival, open mic competition, five minutes, and that's where you get on stage and you just got to do five minutes of stand-up. That was more terrifying than anything because you're on stage then with the expectation that you are going to make people laugh, as opposed to, like, a funny speech where you do a speech and if you make a couple of jokes, people are like, oh, my God, that was unexpected. With comedy, it's the reverse expectation. If you don't make people laugh, it was terrifying. But as soon as you get that first laugh, it, a high that you, you chase the rest of your career. Yeah. Well, you see, I, I don't want to bore you with any kind of theory of comedy or something, yeah. but there is the thing, when you get that big first big laugh, there's, it's what you're feeling is, to some degree, is, is acceptance, isn't it? It's acceptance. Ah. Yeah, that's a powerful feeling of acceptance. The thing that's kind of interesting about your comedy to me is that you, you kind of really want to go further than that. <laughs> you kind of don't really want that acceptance from everyone. You want to sort of cut across the grain of the audience, oh. which is what I think makes a comedian exceptional rather than some ah. guy wants to go out and be, G'day, how are you going tonight? <laughs> You're going to try and, try and endear themselves to you all the time. Look, as a comedian and as a person, you definitely want to be liked and loved on stage. Like there's something great about getting clapped when you're working. But maybe it is a control thing, being able to take the audience to a place that they weren't expecting or that maybe they don't want to go and then identifying that tension and then cutting it with a joke and then... Yeah, making the audience laugh when they don't want against themselves. There's something really delicious about that. Uh, that's the most enjoyable comedy for me. And, like, the observational stuff that is funny is, like, fun, and I feel like that's probably more challenging for me. But what I really enjoy doing and what comes most naturally to me is the stuff that probably makes people kind of question why they laugh and makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> I started doing stand-up with a couple of friends. We called it Fear of Brown Planet. But we put the shows on sale, and before we'd even done a joke on stage... The whole run sold out. It was at the Melbourne Fringe. Like, we had to put on extra shows. And, and I think it was because the concept was so, like, people were like, oh, Muslims are going to be telling jokes. Like, we get to kind of control the narrative. We're not just sound bites on the news and, and everybody else gets to be guests. And so there's something real cathartic about uh, telling a joke to a room full of people that just get it and everybody else is having to sort of catch up or kind of fill in the gaps or look around, like, what does that mean? And, yeah, I think, like, White and non-white Australians really enjoy that. Like, we enjoy that sort of experience. And, yeah, by and large, I think, like, most Australians are just such great people. We, we root for the underdog, which is such a beautiful part of our culture. Tall poppy is annoying, but it's also, like... It's great very, for comedy. It's great for comedy, but it's also really nice. It just means that we're, like, we sympathise with the underdog. And we heckle our friends. We heckle our friends, yeah. That's, that's right. And that's how we get along. One day, you were sitting at work at this consultancy firm where you're working as a tax oh, consultant. Yeah. And the phone rang. It was a strange <laughs> phone call. I, I need you to tell me the story, Mr. Oh, God. So I was at my desk, got a call. 
It was on my mobile, actually. Uh, blocked the number. I picked it up. The guy said, hello, is this Nazim? I said, yeah. He goes, hi, my name's David. I'm calling from the Australian Security Intelligence Organization, otherwise Asia. known as Asia. Asia. And I was like, I immediately, I was like, oh, yeah. I was, oh, sorry, David, I can't speak right now. I'm about to blow up a primary school. Can I call you back? <laughs> and he said, sorry, what was that? And then I was like, sorry, is this Armour? And he said, no, this is David from Asia. I said, oh, sorry. Sometimes me and my friends, we often like prank call each other, like pretending to be Asia. But I'm sure you already know that, you know. Um, anyway, then I was like, I went through this process of like, well, hang on, how do I know you're actually from Asia and you're not just like Armour's friend pretending to be a, like, this is some elaborate prank because we do that to each other. And he goes, all right, if you don't believe me because of this prank, hang up, Google the number for ASIO. It's a free call number on the website. Call it and it'll come straight back through to me. So I was like, all right. So I did it. Hung up, Googled, called, and it went straight back through to he, to, to that guy, which I was like, oh, my God. How do you even do that? I don't know, but this is like, and I was like, I'm really sorry, David. I'm nowhere near a primary school. I'm actually at work. Tax consultant. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, anyway, he was just like, you know, I would like to um, meet you to discuss anything you think might be of interest to us with regards to the, this is what he said, the South Asian communities in Australia, the Muslim communities in Australia, the Arabic-speaking communities in Australia. So basically really broad themes. And I was like, look, I'm working right now. I can't meet you. You know how the corporate world works. The more you pretend to work, the more you get paid. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure what time I finish. And he goes, look, as soon as you're done, we'll call you. I don't know what time that is. He goes, as soon as you're done, we'll call you. Then he hung up. I started freaking out, like deleting emails and SMSs, just anything that's just like, you know, I started Googling all sorts of cool stuff. Like, I love Australia and Aussie, 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 whatever, just to kind of, I was stressed. I was like, I felt like a terrorist. Anyway, I left the building, South Bank Boulevard, near the ABC in Melbourne. As soon as I walked out, got a call block number, picked up. He said, hello, Nazim, this is Dave from Asia. Listen, mate, if you could just turn right at the Yarra River in like 30 metres. And I was like, someone watching you? I, well, I guess. And I said, oh my God, I, I felt like I was in a Bond movie. I said I was the villain. I was like the soon-to-be-dead terrorist and he was playing Bond, you know. But anyway, I was excited to be in that sort of scenario but also kind of freaked out because I'd read a little stuff about the laws which meant that they could detain me for like up to 21 days and I couldn't call anyone. So I was like, look, do you mind if I call my mum and at least tell her where I am? Because, look, you can't tell her what this is about. And I said, can't just tell her something. And he goes, look, if you're worried, call her and tell her simply that you're okay. And I was like, I can't just call my mum up and be like, hi, mum. Just thought I'd let you know I'm okay. Then hang up. That's going to freak the shit out of her. And he goes, just, just relax. It's going to be fine. Go to the escalators. We'll meet at the top, South Gate, and we'll go for lunch at this fancy restaurant. I actually text my friend who's going to the soccer. I think Australia's playing Iraq at some quali- this qualifying game. And I called, I called him. I said, hey, bro, make sure you give me a call later tonight. He's like, oh, why? what's going on? I was like, oh, just make sure you call me. He goes, well, what? What do you want to talk about? I was like, just call me later tonight. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He just hung up. I was like, oh, my God. My freaking dumb friend doesn't even get that I'm in a really high stakes situation. Anyway. Where you joked about blowing up a primary school. I know, and I thought, honestly thought I was going to get detained. <laughs> I was like, I am stuffed now. And I was like, honestly, I was like thinking about any interaction I've had with any shady characters. I'm like, I don't think so. But maybe there's some friends that are dodgy. I don't know. And the fa- Anyway. You're when, a tax consultant. Tax consultant. But I'm also a Muslim tax. You go to the mosque all the time, you, you know, and you start to like uh, condition, a decade of conditioning. I don't know if I am the person that you see something and you're supposed to say something about. You know, you don't. Anyway, I got to the top of the escalators, two guys standing there. Actually, it was one guy. And this other guy was sort of. Like he'd just gone into the bathroom and the guy that was standing there wasn't really making eye contact with me until his friend came out. And then as soon as his friend came out, then he was just like, oh, hey. Like he just suddenly, re- like, I feel like they were adjusting their mics or something and he wasn't ready to talk. Anyway, went into this restaurant, blue train, and we just had a chat and it was just like a casual chat. But then they just would casually slip in parts of my life that only I would know. And I feel like they were trying to freak me out just to sort of let me know that they know. And they started asking me about any friends that I think are a bit suspicious or dodgy. And then at one point I was just like, hang on, why are we even having this chat? Like, I'm not a terrorist, I'm not an extremist, I'm not a radical Muslim. Like, why do you want to talk to me? And they said, look, we don't think you're an extremist or a terrorist, but we do think you have the propensity to maybe become radicalised because, you know, you're politically um, interested, you know, in stuff. And therefore you have the propensity to radicalise other people because you're a charismatic guy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks, guys. So what is uh, that as some kind of a tactic? To backfoot uh, you or to make you feel like you owed them something? I think that the, I think back then they were just interviewing any Muslim of prominence or any Muslim. It's because I said, look, you can't talk to anybody about this. And so I was like, all right, no worries. A couple of days later, I told pretty much everybody I knew. When I did, turns out a lot of my friends had had this same sort of thing happen to them. Lots of free lunches and dinners and stuff like that. One of my friends, an Iraqi Australian guy, looks like his name sounds, like a very Arab-looking guy, and he's a photographer. He's walking around Sydney taking photos of the Opera House, Sydney Harbour Bridge, other bridges. But the way he looks, uh, the next day he got home, knock at the door, 
opens up, two members of AZ standing there, and they said, hi, can we come inside and speak to you? And he said, well, actually, I spoke to my friend Azim. He said, you guys pay for lunch, so can we <laughs> <laughs> and I go, really? And he's, yeah, you go, get this, bro. So we went to La Pulquera. I was like, what? La Pulquera? You idiot. They're paying for lunch. You could go anywhere. And he's like, oh, no, no. I swear I ordered from like, it was the deluxe menu. It was like gourmet pizza, uh, extra toppings. I milked them on the toppings. Yeah. They just went through his photos on his, on his camera. And then at one point they got to a photo where he had taken a photo up his nose. And then that's when they closed his laptop and passed him back his camera and said, that'll be all thanks. That was how they were countering terrorism, I guess. Have you been telling the story on stage? I have a little bit. And I had to get legal advice from my friend, a criminal lawyer in Sydney and his barrister. And they said, so long as you're not disclosing any specific information that they might have told you that adversely affects national security, you're fine. But I literally had to get it legally cleared. And I don't know when I get my file, but I want to I see what, what other stuff I might have missed. So meanwhile, you're doing TV comedy at the time. You were that wonderful show, Salam Cafe, the, yeah. I think it was community TV. They went to SBS, didn't yeah. they? And you're doing that with Waleed Ali. And yeah. how did Waleed strike you in those days? Oh, Waleed was like a legend in the community. He used to write articles for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, and we were like, oh, my God, there's a Muslim who writes in the newspaper and he's not being quoted as, like, some extremist or something. Like, he's writing that and he's eloquent and he's a lawyer, he's really smart, and I was so excited to meet him. A bit of a celebrity, as he should be. And he's just a humble guy, someone that I've, to this day, never seen him lie, never seen him swear. Like, he's just an upstanding person. A couple of mutual friends are like, hey, let's put together this TV show, talking about Muslim life, because, you know, everybody that we see on TV that is Muslim doesn't look and sound like us. So we just did this dodgy panel show and, you know, we just talked crap and I was like kind of the Trevor Marmalade on the side, just standing behind a coffee <laughs> like a barista. Here's the thing about you and Waleed. Waleed has won the Gold Loki, the <laughs> yeah. most popular TV presenter on Australian TV. <laughs> the what... award they normally give to Bert Newton or Kerry ann Kennelly was given to, well, he's a Muslim, but more startling huh. to a public intellectual. Yes. He's a glitch in the matrix. It's like they made a big error. Like Australia was, I think immediately after, everyone was just like, wait, what do we do? What just happened? There's a long theory amongst executive producers about the kind of faces that Australians are not prepared to see on TV. Mm. And I think when you give people the vote, it just always proves it totally wrong. Absolutely. That's the thing, like, Australia by and large, like, you go down to Melbourne Central, it's like you're at the departure terminal at Melbourne Airport. You walk around any city in Australia, incredibly diverse, but you turn on the TV and it's like we've just gone back in time 50 years. There's such a disconnect between what you see and read and what you experience on the street and what you eat and what you listen to. So, yeah, I think there's just like, you want to listen to Australians, you're going to get some very different results than the brochure that we sell. You then went on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. The thing about Australians is Australians are pretty funny when they recognise you from the telly. They're yeah. not like any other people. In Britain, if they recognise you from the telly, <laughs> they say, oh, I saw you, I loved your show, it's very nice, my name is such and such. Everyone keeps their dignity. Yeah. Australians are not like that. Nah. Australians walk up to you and they go, hey, you're that dickhead, aren't you? <laughs> You're that guy, aren't you? Well, they kick your tyres and they make you stand there while they give you a hard time. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, literally on the way to the studio here today, I was riding one of those hire bikes and this guy was just like, oh, you're that guy from Channel 9. And I was like, oh, no. But anyway, and we started chatting and he would just he ran alongside me. And I was like, I feel bad. I've, got, I've still got a kilometre and a half. To, but he was just talking absolutely. And, like, the more crap he could hang on me, the more comfortable and funny he felt. But, yeah, like, after I'm a celebrity, get me out. Like, I, on that show... I don't know, I became the guy that became famous for having a sensitive gag reflex. I kept throwing up. I thought, all right, if I just swallow it, Aussies are going to be like, all right, he did it, and they're not going to put me through this. But I kept, they just kept voting for me to do it over and over. I got to the grand final, probably as well. Anyway, on the street afterwards, I'd walk down the street, people would come up to me and go, hey, Nazim, blah, blah, and, you know, incite my own gag, and I'd throw up on the street. Happens to this day. Now I'll probably encourage more people. But I had, well, the first guy that saw me after this show was on a train at Flinders, packed carriage. Before this, I didn't even know if anyone was even watching the show because you're in the jungle. I was there for 46 days. I was like, is this even going out? Like, they could have cancelled the show. Anyway, I got on a train, packed at peak hour. Some guy sees me other end of the carriage and he stands up and he yells. He goes, hey, you're from the jungle. Guy next to me has no idea what he's talking about. It's like, is that racist? <laughs> it was, uh, but, like, I kind of love it. I did Balls of Steel as well, which is this show where you do like pranks on the public and it's a competitive show where comedians have to try and show how stupid they can be in public you know so people all the time come up to me and they 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 try to scare me because that's what maybe i used to do they used to, maybe i did that maybe it's just karma for the rest of my life 
had this Arab guy, this elderly man come up to me on Sydney Road the other day and he corners me against a brick wall and he goes, you, India man, no India man here. You get out. You get out. He said, I got you. <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, I prank you like you do. And the whole thing was like really confusing for me, but... That's what I've, I deserve that. Are you normally shy, though, in public? Do you find, are you kind of mortified when all this is happening? I, I, I walk around with noise head, uh, cancelling headphones because I'm just like, I don't want to have to deal with that all the time. But people don't care. They're just like, there's that guy that does pranks. I'm going to do a prank. And it's always the same sort of thing when they try and scare me. Especially if you're, like, famous for being funny, mm. then it's almost like it's every, everyone's like, oh, I'm funny too. You've made a career out of a personality trait that everyone's born with, like, you arrogant idiot. Like, guys are especially, like, if you, I remember one time I was at this barbecue and, like, you know, I was Look, people were laughing at things I was saying. There's also a lot of attention. Like, you feel like you're on. And, like, this one guy, he, like, it was like I was, like, flirting with his girlfriend because she was laughing. And he got really, he was just scowling more and more. So I was, you know, I was trying to, like, get him in on it. Anyway, he turns to me and he goes, I'm a security guard. The things I've seen, you see what people are really made of. He goes, if you were in that situation, you would cry like a little girl. And I said, like a little girl. And he goes, don't be a sm-. Like, he wanted to fight me or something. I, like, because I was being funny. Anyway. So, <laughs> it's a great country. It's a great country. <laughs> it's a tremendous country. So you've performed all over the world. You've opened for Dave Chappelle in New York, I believe. That's that's amazing. Oh, you've done all these extraordinary gigs. But then maybe the highlight of your international career is being asked to <laughs> do stand up comedy for the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka. <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't asked to do it for him, uh, and he's I, I went there to do a show, and then before I walked on stage, like I saw wooden thrones at the front. And I was like, what is that for? And then there was security and guys with rifles lining the perimeter of the room. And, and it was, yeah, the Prime Minister's wife sat down. I was like, what the hell? And, and also I was stressed out because I hadn't even seen anybody do a joke to the audience. I wasn't even sure what they might laugh at. So then they go, all right, Nassim, get in this tuk-tuk and we're going to drive you out behind this marching band. And on the screen, they had these like massive screens side of stage and it kept, it kept flashing the words, Nazim Hussain, stand-up comedy has never been so good, so good, so good. I was like, can you please just turn that off? That's really stressing me out. And it's setting the bar ridiculously high. Got on stage and I was like really nervous. Oh, and before, a week before... Enrique Iglesias performed in Sri Lanka. And while he was performing, women threw bras at him on stage. And then the Prime Minister, like, immediately afterwards said, this is unacceptable, immoral behaviour. I'm not saying that Enrique should be killed, but he should be beaten with poisonous stingray eels or some kind of old-school phrase. And so everyone was really outraged. Anyway, so when I come on stage and I saw the Prime Minister and his wife, I said, hey, guys, great to be here. You know, I hope you have a good time. Look, if you get excited, make sure you don't throw any bras at me. And I, t- I turned to the Prime Minister's wife and I said, you can throw whatever you like. <laughs> anyway, everyone freaked out. And then, like, the guys with guns were just like, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do here. And then she started laughing. And then she, her face was on the screen. As soon as she started laughing, the rest of the room started laughing. And I was like, oh, my God, thank God. I, I thought I was about to get deported. <laughs> but anyway, the bar was much lower than I expected because they had not had much experience with stand-up. So I did some really simple jokes and they were like, whoa! You know, it was amazing. They caught stand-up a concert comedy as well. had never been that good. <laughs> Actually, you delivered. You delivered. I delivered. God. Haven't been back, though. How do you follow that? So you're a dad now. I'm a dad. How many kids? Two. Two. How old are they Boy now? Boy and a girl. Yeah. Um, nearly six and nearly two. Did you give a lot of thought to the kind of father you wanted to be, given your own bumpy relationship with your own dad? Oh, I've, I've given it thought my whole life. So, so as soon as I realised I was becoming a dad in the lead-up, I completely was sort of freaked out. It's almost like I just pushed the concept to the side of my brain. It just felt so weighty and kind of confronting. But as soon as my child was born, I was like, oh, my God, I'm all in. This is the best thing ever. And yes, the way that I have parented and decided to parent is by giving my kids what I didn't get, you know, which is a lot of attention, a lot of words of affirmation. Just I'm always cuddling them. I'm way too tactile. I just sort of want them to know that I'm always there because I think that's yeah, definitely what I didn't get. Years ago, I had Akmal Saleh on, and Akmal has this really interesting theory. I think it's his theory in Ooh. any case about male comedians in Australia anyway and the absent father. He said, you look at behind the careers of, so many Australian male comedians and there's a missing father. And I thought that just sounded like cheap pop psychology and then I went into my head and I went tick, tick, yeah. tick, 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 tick. This is exactly what my tick, manager tick, said this tick, to me. Tick. I don't know if she said it was just male comedians, but she was like, comedians all have daddy issues. I think we've all got some sort of missing dad thing going on. So if my kid becomes a comedian, oh, God. 
I've been on tour too much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like maybe the audience giving us that validation. Like maybe that's what people naturally seek in their dads, just that sort of I'm proud of you, son, I'm proud of you, daughter, whatever, you know. And that's what we get from the audience. That acceptance. That acceptance. Oh my god, you're right. Laughter is Yeah. Barry Humphreys had another word for it. He said it was forgiveness. And oh, yeah. I, I think what he meant by that was forgiveness for all you know, he'd not been mm. a terribly good family man to begin with, he said. Mm. And he said there was always a kind of forgiveness mm. in that laughter. I think because, like, you can only be honest on stage. An audience doesn't really connect with someone that's not being authentic. Like, you might not give everything. You might not tell your story on stage, but people are laughing if they feel that you're being authentic. And so that laughter is probably, yeah, it's like affirming something real. And also, when you don't get a laugh, it feels the worst because you are being authentic. You're putting yourself on set. You're not judging yourself on somebody else's script. You're, people are like, judge me for me. Here I am. Take me. And then they don't. Oh. And then you go home to like a, a, a motel room by yourself. It's so lonely. It's just such a bad, it's a bad profession. Like a mental health practitioner wouldn't construct this as a, a healthy career. Like, okay, go on stage, seek this high. And then if you don't get it, or if you do get it, just go home by yourself rely on the affirmation of large groups of strangers. Your backstage is a pub. The whole thing's just, it's just, it's really unhealthy. Are your kids aware of what you do and that you make people laugh on stage? My son is probably a little bit more aware, but he, uh, yeah, people, you know, come up and ask for photos and now I think he's starting to get it, but, I, but all this time I think he was just like, dad's got a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, but he's, there's a bit of jealousy as well, like when other people just talk to me on the street, like, why are you talking to these other people? It's also like the other day I did like a Zoom interview for like one of the morning shows on TV and my son kept walking into the office and then going into the TV room, seeing me on TV and then seeing me on computer. It was just like, what is going My dad's on the TV and he's here. But the TV is my dad now. What, like you couldn't figure that crap. Like it was, it was blowing his mind a little bit. And there's going to come a time where he's going to learn about this other dad <laughs> on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. I'm going to go through that phase where I'm anticipating wanting his approval of that dad too. And what if he finds me daggy? Like, I know that sounds like a really small problem, but actually that's a huge thing that I want. I want my dad, my kids to think I'm cool on stage. You know, even on my son's birth certificate, we've got one which has the demons thing on it because it's like Melbourne demons. Like, yeah, I'm a big demons fan. My dad was a big demons fan. One of the only things we connected over. But the other day, my son started saying he's going for Carlton. Like he's trying to get a reaction out of me and I'm just trying to give him a neutral response because I don't want him to. I feel like he's just doing it for the sport of it, you know, to try and, uh, I don't know, get a reaction out of me. Stick, stick to your guns on that one, Nazim. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure speaking with oh, you, Nazim. Thank you so much. Thanks sir. for having me, man. I'm, I've got no words to express my gratitude. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.